The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9, if necessary, so that we can study the Word under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. To begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the freedoms that we have in this nation to gather together and to worship you freely and unencumbered by the pressures or laws of a overpowerful state. Father, we thank you for those who have sacrificed to serve in the military of this nation throughout the decades and two centuries of her existence. Thank you for those who made the ultimate sacrifice to secure the liberties that we hold so dear. Father, we pray that we might not forget what they have done, but that we might be mindful that the freedoms we have were secured through military victory. And it is only through a strong military that we will continue to maintain and be able to defend our freedoms. But beyond that, the most important aspect is not simply a strong military, but having the right mental attitude and the right thinking in our souls, which comes only from Bible doctrine. And as we study today in our continuing study of Judges, we see that the failure to hold steadfast to the truth as revealed in your word is what deteriorates our souls and what ultimately causes the loss of freedom and liberty. Father, we pray that we would be mindful that it is the task of the believer to advance to spiritual maturity and that in that, as he advances, the nation around him is blessed by association. And it is the pivot of believers that will continue to be the source of blessing and prosperity for this nation. And so it is up to us, the individual believer, to make sure our volition is positive and that we are devoted to the study and application of your word. Now, Father, as we study the things we look at this morning, we pray that we would be responsive to them and God the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges, Judges chapter 10. And we come upon, as I've indicated before, one of the oddest episodes in the Old Testament. There is no other episode quite like this, and it is an episode that is badly understood and unfortunately misinterpreted by many people due to the fact that most evangelicals operate on the assumption that the leaders during the period of the judges were a lot more spiritual, spiritually advanced than they were, and that just because they are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, that they are... were, were much more astute spiritually, relied upon God more strongly than they actually did. We have to understand these events in the light of the context of judges and the deterioration of the nation. What we have seen again and again and again in our study of judges is that 
the nation loses its freedom not because they are simply weak militarily, not because they are behind the other nations technologically, not because they have a poor economy or lack good leadership, though all of those aspects are true. The issue at stake in the book of Judges is to show that the real problem was a spiritual problem and that they... If they had been right with the Lord spiritually and positive to doctrine, then they would not have come under the oppression by the foreign powers and they would not have undergone the military defeats that they did and they would not have become servants of the foreign nations. But because they rejected God and rejected doctrine, God punished the nation again and again and again. And as the nation continued through these cycles of spiritual deterioration, what happens is the, the culture as a whole t- took on more and more of the trappings of the surrounding culture of the Canaanites. And this is always the problem with Christianity throughout the ages, is that the church has always mirrored or reflected the trends of the world around us. And I don't think that's inescapable, because after all, the church is always going to be made up of people who grew up and were taught to think and were trained by the world system around them until they came to a point of salvation. And unless there is a dedication to the Word of God and dedication to doctrine to transform the thinking by a large majority of people within any culture, within any nation, within any society, then that culture is not going to be impacted by Christianity to a, to a very large degree at all. And see, this is what made Western European history so fantastic. Now, I'm not glossing over the many flaws in Western European history. See, today, what's happened in multiculturalism and, and um, cultural, in the name of cultural, cultural di- diversity and uh, under the whole umbrella of uh, postmodernism, what, what you have is a, a system of thinking that wants to... Uh, attack Western European, especially males, as being the source of all evils in society. And if we could just somehow rid ourselves of that cultural influence, then we would uh, be able to really advance and have true freedoms for all peoples and all, all cultures. And so that's one of the major themes in education today in most college classrooms. But... What made Western European culture great was not that it was European, not that it was male. I mean, you have patriarchal societies, and we're going to see the, an extreme consequence of patriarchy run amok in this chapter when, when paganism dominates. You have patriarchal societies. You have had male-dominated societies. You have had all kinds of similar societies and cultures throughout history. But what made Western European culture what it was, was, was the influence of a Judeo-Christian thought form, Judeo-Christian ethic, uh, the revelation of God, and ultimately the influence of Christianity and men who, especially coming out of the Reformation, thought seriously and profoundly about the implications of doctrine for economic theory, political theory, and social theory. And it is the people who thought, those men who thought so profoundly and so deeply and let the Scriptures impact their thinking. Now, that doesn't mean they were right in every case, and it doesn't mean that, they, that you can give a, a carte blanche approval to their entire philosophical system. But the point is that they were men who took the Scriptures seriously and believed that the Bible was the revealed and an errant word of God, and tried to use that as much as possible as a starting point for their thinking about man and about man's relationship to man, politics, government, society. And as a result of that, they wrote many profound things in the uh, 17th century and 18th century that influenced the founding fathers of this nation. Now, what made, so what made Western European civilization great was the influence of Christianity. Before Christianity, there was very little difference between the thinking in the Roman Empire, the thinking in, uh, of the Greeks, the thinking of the Greek Empire, from that of the Egyptians, Babylonians, Mesopotamians, Asians, or any other empire based on paganism throughout the world. 
they had certain commonalities and usually there was some sort of totalitarian, strong-armed government that uh, ruled for its own benefit and overlooked the liberties and the values of the individual citizen in that nation. It is only those nations that have been impacted by the thinking of Scripture and not just, not just in terms of something like salvation, but really working deeply to understand that the Scripture addresses every arena of life, that the Scripture addresses every category of thinking, not just so-called theology or spirituality that the Bible is absolutely inerrant in everything it addresses and gives us a coherent worldview that has implications for every field of study and every category of human thought and human endeavor. And when that influence is removed, then what happens is those societies that had been influenced by Christianity begin to fragment, begin to break down, and begin to take on the appearance of just every other culture and every other society around. And that's what happened during the time of the judges because Israel refused to completely annihilate the Canaanites as God had commanded. They compromised with them and they coexisted with them and then they intermarried with them and it wasn't long before they were worshiping the same gods and they were their culture was no different from that around them. So that the spiritual leaders, like the judges from Othniel through Samson, the more the culture they came out of reflected the paganism of the Canaanites, the more the thinking of those individual leaders was influenced by the thinking of the culture around them. And to understand what happens with Jephthah and then again with Samson in the, the following episode, to understand them, we must understand that they are men who are thinking more like the pagans than like the men who are truly influenced by the, by the scriptures. And with Jephthah, you have something very similar to what happens today, and that is what I call sort of a superficial closet kind of uh, Christianity. He talks about God a few times as if, just like in many things that we do in our society, we um, have an invocation or a benediction, but yet it's like we're just giving uh, a nod to God, and there's no real profound influence of biblical thinking on, uh, on our thinking. And this is what happens with Jephthah. Now, to briefly review what has happened is the Israelites have once again uh, disobeyed God. And uh, there is a list at the beginning of chapter 10 in in verse 6 of the fact that they not only got involved with the fertility religions of the Canaanites serving the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but they got involved with the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the people of Ammon. Now, pay attention. Those last two are very important because that is specifically going to impact what happens in this, in this, in this episode and the next chapter. They're influenced by the religious thinking of the Moabites and the Ammonites, specifically along with the other groups. But what has happened now is instead of seeing what we have in the past, that they're just influenced by the Canaanite religions, now they're dominated by all the false religions of the nations that surround Israel. So the degree of apostasy is much greater than it has ever been before. But specific note is paid to the religions of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And the reason for that is because in both of those systems, they practiced human sacrifice and infant sacrifice. And that plays a part as background understanding to what takes place in the episode with Jephthah and his vow. Now, last time we looked at Israel's turning back to God, their confession of sin in verses 11 through, um, in verses 10 through 14, and God's response that He wanted a little more than just a superficial confession if He was going to remove the consequences for their discipline didn't have anything to do with fellowship. It has to do with delivering them from their divine discipline. So finally, they admit their sin in verse 15. And, they, and it's more than just an admission of sin, but they go so far as to remove the foreign gods from them. They stop doing what they have been doing that has caused them to break fellowship and go into apostasy. Now, that's the last time we're going to see a significant mention of God until we get uh, further on into this chapter. We're told then that after that took place, 
the people, that they were invaded again by the Ammonites in verse 17. And so the Israelites assembled themselves together and encamped in Mizpah. Now, we're not sure exactly where this Mizpah is. It is not the Mizpah that's located in the uh, central area of Israel. There is one Mizpah that is located roughly in the central highlands of Israel. And this was a second Mizpah that is located in the Transjordan area. Now, the term Transjordan refers to that land that God gave the nation across the Jordan. It was inhabited by the tribes of Manasseh and Gad. You have Manasseh here in the north. If you look on the map on the screen, Manasseh is in the north. Gad is in the south. And Mizpah, uh, we guess that it's located somewhere in the vicinity of Gad. So they gathered there. Ammon is located, as we will see on another map, off to the east. And they will invade from the east into this Transjordan area. This is the uh, geographical area where all of the uh, battles and everything transpires in chapter 11 and chapter 12. So we're told that the Israelites gather at Mizpah. Now, they're just a mob at this point, mob of warriors perhaps, but they have no one to lead them. And in verse 18 we read, The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another. Now, who are the leaders of Gilead? Well, if we look at this map again, what happened was that over time this Transjordan area became known geographically as Gilead. So it covers that whole area from Manasseh in the north down through Gad's uh, possession in the south. And the Transjordan area generally became known as Gilead, who is one uh, name for one of the men under Joshua, who went in and captured uh, and took control of that area. So the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they're looking for someone to take control, to take authority, and to take charge. There's no one there who has the ability to do this. This is um, one of those interesting episodes in history. This, What really happens in the next chapter down until you get into the details of Jephthah's vow and the battle itself is not unlike a common theme in adventure movies or adventure literature. One of the great movies of movie makers of our time was a Japanese director by the name of Akira Kurosawa and he did, had a movie called The Seven Samurai and it was a, the story of a village that was being oppressed by a bunch of bullies and so one of the men in the village escaped and went and found seven uh, samurai who did not have any loyalty to any particular uh, lord or shogun and hired them to come and deliver the town from these oppressive bandits. That movie was then remade in English and called The uh, Magnificent Seven. And if you've seen Kurosawa, then you understand what The Magnificent Seven is all about. Well, that's the same story as what happens here. You have a group of people on the Transjordan who are basically being oppressed by the Ammonites, and they don't have anybody who can fight for them. They don't have anybody who can pull together the army. They don't have anybody who understands strategy and tactics. So they need to get somebody. They need to have a hired gun who's going to come in and organize everybody so that they can defeat the bad guys. And that leads us in verse 1 to an introdu- of the next chapter to an introduction of this uh, warrior they're going to hire. We're introduced there to Jephthah. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite, so there we're told that he is a Gileadite. He's one of their own, but he is not looked up to by them. He has a somewhat checkered past and a besmirched family history, and so he is an outcast from his own people. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. And this phrase in the Hebrew uh, indicates that he was a warrior. That's the thrust of the idiom. He was a... Uh, a Gabor, which means a warrior, and he was also the son of a whore. Well, that tells you right away that he's not one of the most popular people, and like like, um, Abimelech, who's the son of a concubine, and later on we see this even with with David, who is the overlooked and mistreated and abused son of Jesse, Uh, God is going to bring somebody up from the background to be a leader in the nation. But we never are told that God raises him. And that's an important thing to notice here. 
You don't see God mentioned in verses 17 to 18 of the previous chapter. His name is conspicuously absent from all of this. The people just get together, say, well, who's going to lead us? They're not really dependent upon God at this point and are not. And God is conspicuously absent from this entire event. So the Holy Spirit makes it clear through the author that we pay it no to his family heritage, that he is the uh, son of a whore and his father Gilead. Now, that raises some interesting observations about the nature of society at that time. First of all, we need to recognize that, that obviously the mar- marriage is breaking down, and we have this emphasis on Gilead, who is going outside the family to a prostitute in order to have sexual relations. Now, his, this prostitute gives birth to Jephthah, and there seems to be a sense of honor, at least on Gilead's part, that he brings this child into his own home in order to raise the child. But some other questions ought to occur because we're not told who this woman was. Was this woman a, uh, an Israelite woman? In which case, we, we know that from our study of Jewish family that, that the nation must have been in a serious deterioration because it was looked upon so... I mean, a prostitute was at the lowest rung of society and looked down upon so much that a woman had to be in serious straits in order to go into prostitution. If it wasn't an Israelite woman, then that meant it would be a Canaanite woman. Now, if it was a Canaanite woman, was this just some woman, some just common prostitute, or was it a temple prostitute? In which case, you would have Gilead going to a temple prostitute to to a Baal worship, and I think that's probably the case. You can't be sure. Little is said, but it's that's probably the case, and it would just indicate the further deterioration, spiritual decline of the nation, and the fact that Jephthah is not growing up in a godly home. This is not like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's not growing up in a home where doctrine is the number one priority, and he's not going to be taught the Word. He obviously, from what we see later on, knows something about Scripture, understands the historical background of Israel and events in the conquest, and he understands a certain measure of doctrine. But like many people today, he's never spent very much time in the Word so that he has a popular understanding of uh, of doctrine and of the truth is revealed through Moses, but he doesn't have an accurate view. And that's the case today in most churches in this country, is that people have never taken the time to read the Bible for themselves, and so they have all kinds of uh, ill-informed notions about what the Bible teaches and what it says or doesn't say. And, of course, one of the most common examples we hear all the time is somebody gets upset about war or violence, and they quote from the King James Version of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not kill, without realizing that that is not what it says at all in the original languages. It says, Thou shalt not murder. But most people are pretty illiterate about the Bible, and it's gotten worse and worse as time goes by. And that's pretty much the case in that time. So Jephthah has some understanding, but it's it's merged in with a lot of false thinking, and it also has assimilated a lot of ideas that have come out of, of uh, the, the Baalism and the other idolatrous religions surrounding Israel, so that it's, it's, a, it's a mixture. It's a syncretism of, of religious beliefs, and that's going to eventually get Jephthah into serious trouble. Verse 2 tells us that there were other sons in the home. Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. So he is an outcast. He's rejected by his family, rejected by his brothers. They don't want him to have any part of the inheritance of the father, any land with them. And we're told in verse 3 that he fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. Now, we're not sure where that is. It's mentioned two or three other times in Scripture, but we're uncertain of where it is. But there's a note of irony here because Tob in the Hebrew means good. And yet, there is not anything really good taking place in this area. It's sort of like the badlands of Wyoming or South Dakota. It's like the hole-in-the-wall gang that uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid made famous. They... Jephthah goes out there, and then a band of worthless men uh, gather around him, not unlike 
David's mighty men. He's out in the wilderness. There, there are certain similarities, but some crucial differences as well. But he, these worthless men gather around him, and so he has a gang. And they're out there in the wilderness, and from that uh, fortress, from the protection of being out in the land of Tob, they begin to raid. They become criminals, they're highwaymen, terrorists, whatever they could do in order to get um, food and to, and to get possessions. They were not an honest group of men. This is not an honorable group. So Jephthah's out there, and he's got a tough band with them, and they have quite a reputation because nobody can do anything about them, and they just run wild and free, not unlike the Magnificent Seven. So then in verse 4 we read, It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war. So 11, 1 through 3 is really just sort of a parenthesis in the narrative line where we're introduced to Jephthah, his background, and the fact that he is an outcast. Then we are reminded in verse 4 that the Ammonites have invaded the land. Now, if we look at, the, at this map, we're going to see, this is looking at a little bit off-center, north is to the upper left, south is to the lower right. And what we see here is that here's the Dead Sea, just to the south uh, east of the Dead Sea is the kingdom of Moab, to the north uh, east of the Dead Sea was the kingdom of Sihon, which was taken over by Israel, and it is off to the east of theirs, the kingdom of Ammon. Now, Gilead is up north, and so it is, what has happened is that the Ammonites have invaded into Israel. Now, this white area here, that's the kingdom of Sihon, Sihon was defeated by uh, Moses when they were, the Israelites came out of the wilderness and were getting ready to invade the, the land. So that the Ammonites then invade from the east, and as we'll see, their contention is that they want to recover their territory. But this has been 300 years since, uh, since they even had possession of the territory because Sihon had come in. The, the Amorites, don't get confused, we're going to talk about the Amorites and the Ammonites, and with all the similarities and the strangeness of these names, don't get confused. They're different people. The Amorites had invaded from the north and, t- and taken this land from the Ammonites over 300 years earlier and before the Exodus. So when Moses and the Israelites came in, that territory was no longer Ammon's. It was uh, Sihon's and, they, and the Amorites, and they attacked and cap- took the land from, from Sihon. So what takes place by the time of our stories, the Ammonites are going to invade because they want to recover the territory that was there 300 years earlier. Now, there's probably some things we could make application to today, but, but uh, we'll, I'll leave that to uh, your own contemplation as we continue through the episode. So it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel, and so it was when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They looked around. They couldn't find anybody that was bad enough and mean enough in order to uh, defeat the Ammonites, so they finally had to go with the man they had run out of town, who was uh, the despicable one, the rejected one. They said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Now, I want you to notice how Jephthah responds to their offer. He pushes a hard bargain. He shows that he is uh, wily. He understands the issues. He's a hard-nosed bargainer and he enters into some tough negotiations with them. He understands the dynamics of what's going on. He doesn't want to get in a position where if he comes and and, uh, fulfills their request, that all of a sudden they forget about him and he's left out in the cold again. He is going to use this to get some leverage so that he can reinstate himself, not not just in a position he was in before, He was expelled, but now he's going to use this to leverage himself and to manipulate them into making him their leader and giving him the authority that goes along with it. So when this is over with, he wants to come out as somewhat of a king leader over Gilead. So he says to them in verse 7, Did you not hate me? He's going to remind them of how they've treated him. He's going to put them behind, uh, make them feel uncomfortable for a while and expose their own weakness so they'll be more willing to give him whatever he asked for. Didn't you hate me and expel me from my father's house? In other words, why should I help you? 
You haven't done a thing for me in the past. There's no reason why I should help you. And he's making them realize that he is the one who's in full control of the negotiations. He says, Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Verse 8, And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we've turned again to you now, that you may go with us. Turned again. They never turned to him in the first place, but they're overlooking that. They're trying to be, they're trying to gain his favor. This is why we've turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. He wants to make sure that they mean what they say. This is a position of ultimate authority over the na- over all of Gilead. So he says to the elders in verse 9, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? In other words, after the battle, am I still going to be in charge? That's what I want. I want to be in the ultimate position of authority. Notice he mentions the Lord here, but it's only in a somewhat superficial way. Just as anybody casually says, well, as the Lord wills, or if God blesses us tomorrow, but do they really mean it, or is that just a way of speaking? Verse 10, And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us. Okay, we're going to uh, go to court and we're going to swear on a stack of Bibles, but does that really mean anything? See, in our society, when the Bible has lost any significance and nobody knows anything about theology, what does it mean if you were to swear on a Bible? It doesn't mean anything. God is reduced to nothing more than sort of a uh, superstitious token. The elders of Gilead said, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. So he takes on a position as the ultimate authority, both militarily and hopefully, and he hopes, politically over this region. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So they write that the the impact of that statement is they set up a covenant between them and call for God to witness that covenant. And that pretty much sets the contract in stone so that after the war is over, the Gileadites are going to have to give him what they have promised. Now, Jephthah does a very interesting thing in verse 12, which indicates that he understands the situation and he is not some uh, just rough guy out of the um, backwoods of the Transjordan. But he understands something about leadership and he understands something about diplomacy and relations between nations because what he is going to do is make sure that a war is necessary and he is going to make it clear what the military objectives are in the war. You see, that's one of the things that's important is if you're going to go to war, you need to make sure and clearly define what your objectives are. Back in the 70s, 60s and 70s, we never had clearly defined objectives in terms of Vietnam and um, I think we should have had better defined objectives with regard to Saddam Hussein during the de- Desert Storm campaign and what was going to happen with, with Iraq. But that's another story. Jephthah understands this issue, and so he sends some diplomats, some messengers to the king of the Ammonites to find out just exactly what the issues are. Verse 12, What do you have against me that you've come to fight against me in my land? Why are you invading Israel? What are the issues here? going to make, make the objectives clear. Verse 13, And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah. Because, listen to the reasoning. Now, if, now, if you don't understand the Old Testament in terms of what happens during the Exodus generation, what happens with the conquest generation, then you will be completely lost as to what happens in the next several verses. The Ammonites are saying, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok into the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore these lands peaceably. See, what you have here is another example of historical revisionism. This is so common today. It's, uh, we, we don't notice it, and most people are so ignorant of history, they just accept whatever Hollywood, Hollywood's version of any event or uh, whatever they read. But the Ammonites are going to make a territorial claim. Now, what they're claiming is that Israel stole this land from them. This is the land, the landed issue, the territory issue on the map is the area shaded in white, which had formerly been uh, dominated by the kingdom of Sihon. The area shaded in green at the time of the Jephthah episode is where the Am- Ammon had their territory. 
But to understand this, let's look back to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 18, to see if Israel actually stole this land from the Ammonites. Deuteronomy 1, I mean Deuteronomy 2, chapter 18. Now I want you to just remind you of a few things about who the Ammonites were. The Ammonites are cousins of the Jews. They are descendants of Ammon, who was the younger son of Lot. Lot was Abram's nephew. Abraham was the father of the Jewish race. His nephew Lot, therefore, is related to Abraham in his, in his humanity. Lot was a believer, but Lot was not ever a Jew. Jews only are designated by being sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three must be there. So Lot was never considered a Jew, but he was a believer. That's evidenced by the fact that God delivered him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that episode? They're living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was apostate, but he was a believer. And when God came, was going to, to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, and he visited Abraham, Abraham said, well, wouldn't you deliver Sodom if there were 20 righteous people there? God said, yes. Well, what about 10 righteous people? God said, yes. Well, what about five? And so... Abraham was making the point that, well, Lot's living there. He's righteous because he's a believer. So you should bless him or take him out of there before you judge the rest of the cities of the valley. So God warned Lot, and Lot and his wife and daughters left. His wife looked back, and she was turned to a pillar of salt. And Lot and his daughters escaped. Now, after that... His daughters got him drunk. They were not married. Nobody wanted to marry them. Nobody, and they were not going to have children or pass on their the, the line. So they had a rather pagan view of things. And they decided they were going to take matters into their own hands and solve the problem. So they decided, well, there's no men around except Dad. So let's get him drunk and have incest with him. And, and then we'll continue the family line. So that's a rather perverse way of solving the inheritance problem. But that's what they did. And the two sons that were born were Moab and Ammon. Ammon was the younger. And God gave them, because of their relationship to Lot and their relationship to Abraham, and that's called, this is called blessing by association, God gave them real estate across the Jordan and guaranteed that it would be theirs. And they inhabited their land long before the Jews were ever in their land. So from the time of Abraham, the descendants of Ammon and Moab were in their land. And at that time, this area, this entire area, the white and the green, was Ammon's. The area south of there belonged to the descendants of Moab. But something happened during the time that the Jews were in, kept, were in bondage down in Egypt. And what happened was that there was an invasion from the north by the Amorites. The Amorites were north of Canaan, and they came under pressure from the foreign invasion of the armies of the Hittites. And so they left their homeland up north and migrated down to the uh, southeast, came on the Ammonites, and the Ammonites were weak militarily, so they were, the, the Amorites defeated the Ammonites and took over a portion of their territory. So that by the time Israel came out of Egypt, and came out of the wilderness to go into the land, Ammon no longer possessed the land shaded in white. That's not what the king of the Ammonites is telling Jephthah. He's saying, that's our land. And Jephthah is going to follow, uh, remind them of what happened biblically. But before we get there, let's look at what happens in Deuteronomy 2, verse, starting in verse 18. There we read, this is God giving the marching orders to the nation. This day you're to cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab. And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. And so God makes it clear that Israel is not to take land from the Ammonites or the Moabites. That's their land. God's given it to them. What had happened was, by this time was that Ammon had, by virtue of their failures, lost part of the land that was there. So that was no longer theirs, and it was never again to be a part of their kingdom. And that was given uh, to... God gave that to the Jews when they came in in the conquest. 
Now let's, uh, if you skip down in chapter 2, down to verse 26, and on into chapter 3, what you have there is a rehearsal of what took place in the beginning stages of the conquest. And just a quick summary is that Sihon, down here in the south, is defeated by the Israelites, and then Og, up to the north, is defeated by the Israelites, Og, the king of Bashan. And so those two territories, Bashan and the Amorite kingdom, come under the possession of the Jews. So never, never in history had the Jews stolen land from the... uh, from the Ammonites. Now let's go back and look at verse, look at Judges 11, verse 14. So after the king of Ammon makes this false charge, Jephthah responds. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, verse 15, and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. Notice he puts Moab first, then Ammon. Apparently Jephthah is familiar and has studied the background, and it makes it clear what the issues are. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea, came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom. Edom was further south of Moab, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed, and in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh, and they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom. No, he just passes over the 40 years in the wilderness. And they bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. That's the river that flows that separated Moab from Ammon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through. So Sion gathered all his people together, encamped in Jahaz, and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. See, the point that he's making is a theological point. God gave us this land. God gave you your land. God specifically gave us this land. We did not take it from you. The Amorites had taken it from you. But because God gave it to us, we have a divine right claim to the land. And then verse 22, he summarizes, They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. But note, they never encroached on the territory of the Ammonites. Why? God had forbidden it. They never took it. Verse 23, And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Now, he's going to get into a somewhat interesting dialogue here. It says, Should you possess it, since God took it away from the Amorites and gave it to us? What right do you have to possess it? Will you not? And then he's going to use the theological argument against him. He's going to say, Will you not possess whatever Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess. See, what he's saying is God gave this for our possession. If your God gave you a possession, wouldn't you claim that you had a natural right to it? Of course you would. So you need to recognize our right. But in the middle of this, he refers to the God Chemosh. Now, he makes an error here. Chemosh is not the God of the Amorites. He's the God of the Moabites. And a couple of times here, when he's talked about, listed the, he's talked about the Moabites, But he hasn't even mentioned the Ammonites. He talked about coming to the border of the Moabites and coming to the border of the Amorites. But after this first mention of the Ammonites, he virtually ignores them. And he's doing that purposely. He's sort of uh, tweaking their nose a little bit in this whole dialogue. And he's trying to to cause them to, uh, trying to upset them. Either that or he's just basically ignorant of the religions around him. But I don't think that would be the case because he had because of how he had grown up and the influences that had been brought to bear on Israel. Everybody was familiar with the, all the uh, pantheons of the surrounding nations. So he's confusing them, or he's using the name Chemosh in a sarcastic way because Moab was always the stronger power, and he's just uh, using this in a somewhat sarcastic manner to try to um, put them off balance. So whatever the Lord, so he says to them, whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, 
Did he ever strive against Israel? See, now he's going to use a historical argument. When we came around the Moabites, the Moabites didn't attack us. So are you going to say you're better than Moab? That uh, since they didn't fight against us, now you're going to fight against us? And of course, the answer to that would be no. They're not. Moab always had a superior power to the Ammonites. And then Jephthah concludes in verse 27. Therefore, I have not sinned against you. Notice how he personalizes it. It's not the nation. It's it's him personally. But you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the Judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not listen to the words which Jephthah sent him. Now, this is the high point of Jephthah's career. It is at this point that he understands what the word has said. He understands the territorial possessions that God has given him. And because of his understanding of that, he makes a very cogent argument, makes it clear what the issues are, that it's ultimately a matter of what God has given Israel, and then he's in that territorial possession. This is the high point of Gideon's career, and from this point on, just like Gideon, he slips into arrogance and lets the pagan influence of the culture around him influence him. Remember, Gideon had his victory, and after the victory, the people came to him to make him king. He said, no, I'm not going to be king. Only God can make someone king. And then he immediately set up an ephod, led the people into idolatry, and named his son Abimelech, which meant, my father is king. So in the same way, Gideon turned on a dime from being at his, at his best to being at his worst. Jephthah does the same thing. Look at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now, remember, the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament did not have anything to do with the spiritual life of the individual believer. Not like in the church age. This isn't an indwelling like the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in the church age. In the church age, every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit from the moment of salvation. Only believers are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit indwells the believer to set us apart and to make us a temple for the indwelling of the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ indwells every believer as does the Father and the Holy Spirit. But that's not the case in the Old Testament. Furthermore, in the, in the church age, the Holy Spirit is the one who enables the believer to live the Christian life. That was not happening in the Old Testament. That wasn't even the purpose of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to the leadership in Israel. Those that, that were under the, um, had some kind of ministry of the Holy Spirit to them, which I call the endowment of the Holy Spirit, that prophets, priests, uh, a few kings were endued by God the Holy Spirit. But it was in order to allow them to function within their leadership responsibilities for the theocratic kingdom. That was it. When, when the Holy Spirit uh, came upon Bezalel and Aholiab, who were the craftsmen, the goldsmiths, the carpenters, the jewelers, who fashioned all of the tabernacle furniture, it was not for their spiritual life, but in order to give them skill and understanding so that they could manufacture all of the furniture and furnishings for the temple. It didn't have to do with their spiritual life. Same thing with, with the prophets. It had to do with revelation. It did not, and their role as a as a uh, leader in the kingdom, it didn't have to do with their own spiritual life because the spiritual life in the church age, I mean in the age of Israel, was not based on the Holy Spirit. It was based on uh, limited use of the faith rest drill. And it was designed, as we covered in the uh, dispensation series, it was designed to show the inadequacy of human ability that even at our best, man cannot come up to the standards of God. And so in the church age, there's a new spiritual life that is based on the enabling and empowerment of God the Holy Spirit to demonstrate that God has to do everything for man. Man can't even uh, cooperate from his own resources. So the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Jephthah doesn't have anything to say, does not indicate that that means that Jephthah is a super spiritual believer or that, that Jephthah is... Uh, somehow going to make right decisions after this. Coming upon, uh, Jephthah indicates that the Holy Spirit is going to enable Jephthah to, to uh, make wise decisions in the battle and secure military victory. And once again, this emphasizes, as it does again and again through, through the history of, of the Old Testament, that victory for Israel, freedom in Israel, was always secured through military victory, and God is not a pacifist. 
the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. So there's going to be a cause effect here. As Gideon is up here in the northern area, he's going to pass through and move south in order to uh, meet the Ammonites as they come in. And on his way, Jephthah is going to make a vow. Now, there's three positions on this vow. The first position is he made the vow and he ch- and afterwards he modified it. The second position is, and the one you find commonly argued, that it was a rash vow. He really didn't understand what he was doing and that he just uh, let his mouth run away with him. And the third view, I don't think either of those two are right. I think from what we've seen so far, Jephthah is a knowledgeable person. Jephthah is thoughtful. He has thought through the issues when he negotiates with the Ammonites. He press, I mean, when he negotiates with the Gileadites, he presses to make sure he gets complete control. Everything we see, see of Jephthah up to this point demonstrates that he is a man who has thought through what he is doing. He makes a vow to the Lord. This is very common in the Old Testament. We have other examples, such as Hannah's vow uh, to the Lord, and uh, um, Absalom made a vow to the Lord, and there's one or two other vows to the Lord. And there are strict regulations in Leviticus about vows, that if you make a vow to the Lord, you have to keep it, or you, have, or you can buy your way out. If, if for some reason it invol- ends up involving something that, um, that is wrong, that would cause you to violate the Mosaic Law, or you're just incapable of fulfilling it, there were stipulations in Leviticus 27, 1 through 8, where, where you could put a price on on the sacrifice that you had vowed to sacrifice and pay the monetary fee rather than sacrificing the animal. So all of that must be taken into consideration when we look at at this particular vow, that there is a pressure there. But in the pagan religions, there were also vows. And you have examples from the Greeks and examples from other cultures around of people making, making vows, and it was something very serious but it was a way of manipulating God to do what you wanted Him to do. Now, in Israel, the vows that are stipulated in the Mosaic Covenant were not designed that way. They were expressions of devotion to God. But in the pagan religions, it was a way of manipulating God to get Him to do what you want Him to do. And, you know, we run into the same things today. People get in a bind. They say, God, I'll start going to church or I'll start reading my Bible if you'll just get me out of this uh, trouble. If you'll just solve the problem the way I want you to solve my problem, then uh, I'll do this for you. And they try to bargain with God. And so this is a very pagan approach, and it's typical of what was going on in the ancient world. So Jephthah knows exactly what he is doing. And this is his vow. If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. A couple of observations. First of all, it's phrased rather oddly, whatever comes out of the doors of my house. He anticipated that it would be a human coming out of his house. Animals were not kept in a Jewish home. So he he recognizes that it would be a human. He knew that at the beginning, and it just shows how... um, Seriously, he wants this victory. This victory is going to secure him a position of success and power if he wins the battle. And so, as typical in pagan cultures, he wants to impress God with the seriousness of the situation and to make sure that God does what he wants him to do and gives him the victory. So, he's going to give to God the most valuable thing he can think of, and we will discover that that is his daughter. And regarding the vow, he says, it shall be the Lord's, not just simply dedicated to the Lord, but he says, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And there he uses the word olah. And an olah is the technical term for a burnt offering. It comes from the Hebrew word Allah, which means to ascend or to go up. So as you would put the, the uh, lamb or goat on the altar, you'd slit its throat and then you would uh, have a fire built under it. And when you lit the fire, everything on the altar would burn up and would ascend to God and it would be... In some cases, a sweet savor offering to the Lord. So that's what he has in mind. Now, we're then told that what happens. Now, he's not doing that uh, because he's filled with the Spirit. He's doing that because he's operating on his uh, compromised religious beliefs. And he's showing that he's still thinking 
mostly like a pagan. Verse 32. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hand, and he defeated them from Aroer as far as Meneth, twenty cities, and to Abel Karamim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So God gives him a, the victory, and it is specified that that is his victory. Now, if you look at this somewhat confusing map here, well, you have to switch your orientation. North is now to the upper right corner. The J here in the magenta color represents Jephthah's troop movements. The A represents the Ammonites. And so Jephthah moves down from the north, attacks the Ammonites near what is assumed Mizpah in this area, and then he follows in uh, succession, defeats them, taking back complete control of the Transjordan area. And this is given to him by God, not because of the vow, but because that was God's promise to Israel before any of the previous uh, vow or negotiations had taken place. So God is going to deliver them from the oppressing power. Now we see the consequences of the vow. Now human sacrifice was not unusual at the time. There's evidence of it throughout um, Israel. There's evidence as early as the Mosaic period. For example, Leviticus 18.21 and in Leviticus 20 verse 2 we read, You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech. Now Molech was one of the gods of the Ammonites. Um, any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Then in Leviticus 20, verse 2, you shall also say to the sons of Israel, any man from the sons of Israel or from the alien sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stone. So there was a recognition as far back as 1400 B.C. that human sacrifice was being practiced by the surrounding nations. It also influenced Solomon, 1 Kings 11:7. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab. See, that's where we learn that the Chemosh is a Moabite god, not an Ammonite god. On the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. So Molech was where they would put a child on the altar, and then they would light the fire and would immolate the child on the altar. This is what Jeremiah refers to in Jeremiah 32:35. They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination. Now, human sacrifice has characterized pagan religions all over the world. And it's popular here in the Western Hemisphere, especially down in Mexico and Central America. One of the most extreme episodes of this took place in 1487. That was before the Spanish came in to, to uh, conquer Mexico under the Aztecs. And it was at the time that a temple to uh, Huitzilopochtli, who was one of the chief gods in the Mexican pantheon, was built. And here's how one writer describes that episode. Uh, at the platform on the summit of the temple, there were two dark sanctuaries, one for Huitzilopochtli, and the other for the rain god, Tlaloc. And in front of these chapels were placed four sacrificial slabs of stone. The four sides of the pyramid were carved with steps, angled slightly downward, so that the bodies of the immolated victims could roll easily to the foot of the temple, where butchers would await to cart them away. So they're going to have a heck of a ceremony here. An unprecedented mass of humanity converged on uh, Tenochtitlan, which is now Mexico City, so that there was no space left in the streets, the plazas, the markets, the houses, which took on the appearance of an anthill with too many ants. The numbers of prisoners for sacrifice were also far greater than on any other occasion. This was a common practice by the Aztecs. The sources estimate anywhere from 20 to 80,000 men. They were arranged in four long columns, stretching beyond the city's limits all the way up to the pyramid summit in front of the four sacrificial slabs. A few thousand of the victims were prisoners from the most recent Aztec conquest. The rest were taken in mock battles they called flower wars with other tribes around them. At dawn, the ghastly celebration began. The kings of Texcoco and Tlacopan 
the two other members of the old Triple Alliance were invited to join Tlacalel and Huizotl. Huizotl was the uh, king and Tlacalel was sort of the kingmaker throughout most of the 15th century among the Aztecs as chief executioners. To the beat of giant drums and the ear-splitting wail of conch shells, the four columns of prisoners began their death march. One after another, the victims were grasped by the priests, slammed down on the stone slabs. Their hearts were ripped out their bodies kicked over the sides of the pyramid. Each prisoner was dispatched in a matter of seconds, their screams muffled by the booming drums. All struggle was useless. Nothing interrupted the steady movement of the human columns as one life after another was snuffed out. When the kings splattered in blood, tired of the killing, they ceded their places to high priests, who in turn were eventually relieved by their juniors. For four days and nights, the massacre proceeded without respite. The streams of human blood that ran down the temple steps congealed into great horrible clots. Many priests scurried around to scoop up this blood in urns and rushed to all the temples and chapels in the neighborhoods to smear the walls and roofs and idols. The stench was so great throughout the city that the populace found it unbearable. The dead were decapitated and their heads placed on racks that would be covered with lime to shore up the walls of the pyramid. The butchery was so enormous and cruel that neither before nor afterwards was there anything like it. So that's just one example of where paganism takes you. And Jephthah had, was more influenced by paganism than by doctrine, and so he made this offer to vow his daughter, and the Scripture says he does to her as he vowed. When his daughter ran out of the house, we're told in verse 35, And it came to pass, when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. Notice, he's not concerned about her. He's concerned about him. Because now that he's going to commit this human sacrifice, it's going to destroy all of his chances to be the leader in Israel. He's completely self-absorbed in the whole process. I have given my word to the Lord, notice the perversion of it, and the ignoring the provisions of Leviticus to buy his way out. So she said to him, My father, if you've given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Notice how obedient she is. And yet what we see here is this is his authority run amok because of the influence of paganism, and she becomes the victim of one of the cruelest abuses in human history. So she says to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity. And the word there isn't virginity, but lack of children. My uh, friends and I... So that's the point, is there will no be no inheritance. There's going to be no family line. She's the only one. And in Israel, that was something horrible. You wanted, Especially for young maidens, they wanted to be in the line of the Messiah. So this means that she will never fulfill her God-ordained role, and that is to be a mother in Israel. And so that is the purpose for the Greek. So she spends two months away bewailing the fact that she will never fulfill her position in life. And then we're told that he, he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed, which means he, he offered her as a burnt offering. And she is memorialized in Israel, and that's the point of the last few verses. All of this indicates just what happens to a nation that succumbs to paganism as it is fragmented. That's what we're going to see in the, in the conclusion of the episode. At the beginning of chapter 12, or we can just summarize it quickly now, the Ephraimites, who are also a problem to Gideon, the Ephraimites are going to come up in chapter 12 and they're going to, to claim falsely to Jephthah, well, you never invited us to the battle. And then there will be a major civil war and he's going to wipe out about 20,000 Ephraimites. And it just shows that as a result of paganism, the nation becomes more and more fragmented. They're no longer experiencing the blessing that God had promised them in the Mosaic Law due to obedience. And the more they become mired in pagan thought and activities, the more they resemble the Canaanites around them and the more uh, they get involved in self-induced misery and divine discipline. So we'll see the conclusion to that episode next time and the preparation for the last judge who is uh, Samson with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word and we're reminded as we study this that 
Your grace was always present to Israel, despite the fact that they were so disobedient again and again and again. You came and delivered them. Your grace toward us is not based on who and what we are. It's not based on any good factor in our own thinking, our own lives. But it's based totally on who you are and your character. Father, we pray that if there's any here this morning that is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain whether they have eternal life, that they would make that sure and certain right now. Salvation is by grace. Just as it was in the Old Testament, it is today. You have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for all sins of human history, no matter how heinous, no matter how horrible, even all of these terrible things the Aztecs did. Father, you paid the penalty for those sins. They have been paid for by Christ on the cross, and by simple faith alone in Christ alone, we can have eternal salvation. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never put their faith in Christ, that they would do so now. Take this opportunity to believe that Christ died on the cross as their substitute. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.